guys, welcome back to episode 57 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I have the pleasure in interviewing Mike Tashir. Mike Tashir is a strong motherfucker. <laughs> Mike Tashir is the owner and head coach at Reactive Training Systems. He's been a powerlifter since 2001 and he's traveled all over the world for competitions. In 2009, Mike became the first man from USA powerlifting to win a gold medal at the World Games which is the highest possible achievement in powerlifting. He's also coached over a dozen competitors at the World Championships and a score national champions and multiple world record holders. On this episode, guys, me and Mike discussed many things about getting strong. This was an absolutely brilliant podcast. Absolutely loved it, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Okay, uh, Mike Tashir. Am I, am I saying your second name right, Mike? Yeah, to share. To share. Okay, Mike. Mike, to share. It's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast. Um, really delighted that that you uh, that you managed to book an hour, um, and come on the show. But just for the listeners who aren't uh, too familiar with who you are, fill us in in the background, Mike. Uh, well, I started powerlifting, uh, competitive powerlifting in two thousand one. I started training with weights back in nineteen ninety seven. So, uh, been at this for quite a while, and. Uh, I mostly uh, work with powerlifters now. I do a lot of online strength coaching and preparation stuff, but um, mostly with, with powerlifters or people who are interested in developing strength uh, in you know kind of the basic movement. Um, I've done work with people like weightlifters and stuff like that in the past, um, but as I've gone on and developed my skills as a coach, I've kind of uh, focus more on on the things that uh, you know, just my core competencies, I guess. What got you into powerlifting? Like, what? Why back in two thousand and one? What was it about it that kind of you know that 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 it attracted you to it? Let's see. I well, I started uh, lifting weights mostly uh, because I was a football player. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, when you're in school and you play football, then lifting weights is something that you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I got started, um, but then once I, I, I was actually researching uh, on the internet, you know, back uh, back when the internet, in, at least in my house, was uh, a fairly new thing. Uh, so I remember typing powerlifting into a search engine just because that's a word that I had heard before, and it sounded like uh, being strong. So I typed in powerlifting and started learning about the sport and you know gaining some exposure to it that way and I just really enjoyed it mm. uh, so kind of as I as I went you know um, I I started out as a football player who was lifting weights in the off season and I think by the end of my school career uh, I had become uh, a power lifter who played football in the off season yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I suppose uh, one thing that's kind of really attractive um, with powerlifting and even Olympic lifting and even I suppose the kind of track and field sports is that their results are very tangible like you know straight away if what you're doing is working or not where when it comes to like team sports the, the, you know the transfer from what you're doing let's say with your GPP is a lot more fuzzier as Dan John would say you know so at least with powerlifting you're kind of getting that immediate feedback they're like yeah I'm getting stronger here yeah yeah and I mean that was that's one of the very interesting things to me. Um, it seems like people who compete in powerlifting, especially, uh, what they're 
kids is they want to be big and strong, but strong is the focus, you know. So that's the goal. So the powerlifting competition uh, is almost secondary to that. I think most of us would continue to lift weights even if uh, powerlifting wasn't a sport. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, there's obviously, there's obviously like a deeper fundamental meaning to why, you know, people lift weights or want to get strong it's obviously just it's you know it's 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 one of the many ways in life to test yourself to see what you're really made of yeah yeah, yeah and, and i think the powerlifting competition um and, and with it being an individual sport and a conditioning based sport like weightlifting or uh track and field things like that mm. um since it's based on physical condition you know rather than uh there's not a there's not a huge tactical component to it uh, not to say that it's non-existent but just that it's relatively minor compared to something like wrestling you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so when you have a, you know, a sport that's primarily based on conditioning like that I think it kind of becomes a way to, to show if the training is working or not yeah. <laughs> you know yeah big time big time with regards to influences Mike so I always ask this as a two part question so first off who have been the biggest influences on you say as a coach and as a powerlifter and as an athlete and then secondly who's been the biggest influence on you as a person wow uh, well let's start with uh, probably the easier of the two uh, talk about influences and in, in iron sports um, that and not that that's a simple simple question either but yeah yeah i know what uh, you mean yeah so it's changed a lot over the years you know it, when i was uh when i was early on in my powerlifting career i used to read all the louis simmons articles and things like that mm. uh, like a lot of lifters in in my generation did yeah, you know yeah. uh you know he was pretty much the only one at the time who was writing very much about training uh, in a cerebral kind of way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, at least the, the as far as writing about training in a accessible way, it was in Powerlifting USA every month, you know? So I would, I would read that pretty, uh, mm. you know, pretty regularly. Uh, so that was a major influence on me in the beginning. Um, but as the years have gone on, uh, I would say that it's become less and less of an influence, and I've derived more inspiration uh, from coaches like uh, Boris Shako or Dietmar Wolf and uh, guys guys like that. Uh, also, some other colleagues of mine, uh, uh, Dr. Mike Zordos, uh, who is getting, uh, getting to be more well-known in the industry, which is a good thing. He's a really brilliant guy. Um, I like uh, talking training with him, and we've done a few seminars together. And also Matt Gary, uh, who's another uh, USA team coach, and uh, he owns a gym in Maryland, uh, has coached uh, many high-level lifters, world-caliber uh, lifters. And uh, so it's, it's always good to talk to those guys. You know, it's, it's good to get both sides of it, the theoretical stuff, but in the end, we're talking about putting it into practice, and a lot of times that has to be translated, you know, by the doers. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, big time, big time. 
And then as as a as a person, did you did you get into that? Well, as a person, I guess my biggest influence as a person would be from my dad. Yeah. Um, my dad was a, a or is a a big influence on me and and how I conduct myself. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people always always mention you know their parents either one of them or both as yeah. their, as their biggest influence. Um. Next question I, I usually always ask is problems, Mike. So, in your in your opinion, what would you say are the biggest problems you see within powerlifting as a sport? Hmm. And like, and that's in any sense, as in you know the, the, the way people train or the way the federations are set up, anything at all. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I think I might see things a bit differently. Just that. I mean, powerlifting certainly has its problems, but I I try to focus on it as a landscape. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, things like the federation. You know, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that being a problem. I I just think of it as that's what is for right now. I mean, I'm not actively out there trying to campaign and fix the federation yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so to me, it's it's just part of the the landscape yeah, right now. Yeah. I mean, if it was, uh, if there were fewer federations, that would probably be a good thing up to a point, you know. Mm, big time. Yeah, so uh, that would be one thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm still very positive about powerlifting. I know that um, there are some that you know see the the things that need to be fixed and improved a lot, but I. I I'm still pretty uh, just focusing on yeah. sport, you know. Yeah, kind of more focusing on yourself rather than trying to control things you really just can't control. So. Yeah, and I mean, of course, there are things that we all wish would be different. You know, uh, within the world of IPF powerlifting, um, you wish that you know we could do more drug testing or better drug testing and um, things like that. You know. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I mean, there's always things that, that can be worked on and improved, you know. Um, just with regards then to, let's say, maybe programming, what what would be the biggest programming mistakes you see with a lot of raw, raw let's we'll start off with, obviously, with raw powerlifters. Um, so, like, in your opinion, you know, when you're kind of, if when people are looking for your help and they're like, here's what I'm doing currently, what are the, like, the common trends you see that you're kind of like, well, maybe this is why things aren't kind of working the way they want to be? So just from a programming standpoint, what, what, what are the biggest problems you're seeing with most people? Well, I'll kind of touch on two different things here. So one thing that if you had asked me this question, I don't know, a, a year ago, even six months ago, um, my thing would have been practicing the lifts, that people don't practice the lifts enough, the competitive lifts. Mm. They spend too much time doing assistance work, mm-hmm. and it it might just be the 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 realm that I'm exposed in, but that seems like that's getting better, which is good. You know, it seems like the message is being heard, and people are doing the lifts a lot more. And when they do assistance exercises, it's stuff that makes sense. It's close to it's close to the competitive lifts. You know, it's uh, stuff that's going to transfer well. They're not wasting as much time. So that's one thing that I used to see as a problem, but it's getting a lot better now. Whenever mm-hmm. I take on a new client or anything like that, um, 
generally those people seem to get it. You know, they're practicing their squats, benches, deadlifts, you know, at least once a week, a lot of times, multiple times a week. So they're getting it. Yeah. You know, now I'm starting to see a trend, a trend in, you know, in the fitness industry as a whole toward, uh, I guess you would call it scientism. Just the, almost an, and it's just a misunderstanding of scientific literature and, and using scientific literature as a weapon. And that's not really, I think that misses a lot of the point. Mm. You know, a lot of people will, uh, well, I spoke about my colleague, uh, Dr. Zorro. Mm -hmm. He did his, uh, his PhD on uh, a form of daily undulating periodization. So there's people out there who will take uh, his, you know, take his work uh, and just run that as a training program. And he'll be the first one to tell you that that's not what he intends. You know, it it was written as a, a piece of research, and it had to be done a certain way in order for it to be good research. And it highlights a principle, not necessarily that that should be the gold standard of training method, you know. And I see a lot more just this, uh, just a hypervaluation of of science. Now, don't don't get me the wrong way. I'm definitely not a, a science basher, and I definitely think where we are now is better than where we were. You know, it used to be that uh, people would look at strength conditioning research and and just dismiss the entire field because of whatever. They would come up with these reasons why they should dismiss the entire field. So we've definitely moved away from that, and I think that's a good thing. But I'm just starting to see maybe the pendulum is going too far. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see people in the industry who, at least it seems to me, like they're going for PhDs and advanced degrees simply because they feel like that will help their credibility and not necessarily for the pursuit of those degrees, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's kind of a problem, you know? When you follow somebody's advice simply because uh, they have a PhD and not because of the merits of the idea, then that's, that's a problem. And you hear people talk a lot of times about, uh, you know, these, these guys who will have a PubMed abstract for everything, but they never get into the full text of the article uh, to understand well, what's really going on in, in the research. So I guess that's, that's a, not really a, you know, a training problem you know, in the sense of doing you know, sets and reps incorrectly or anything like that, but it's just an overall trend in the industry that I, I see things starting to swing a little bit too far in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I suppose that, that's a bit of conditioning from our from a bit of condition from our from our environment and from society that you know we always think if someone has these certain letters after their name they must actually know what they're talking about and as you just alluded to there that that's not necessarily the case because again the, the merit should be on the actual thought process rather than just attaining these letters behind your name so no i definitely do agree with that point you see that an awful lot this and it's a, it's a tricky situation as well you know on the one hand you know, somebody who is a, a researcher in that field, 
probably has better understanding of the current state of research than I do. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not going to outright dismiss them uh, without, you know, without having given it some thought. Oh yeah, absolutely. And same, same on my end as well. Yeah. The next. I'll oh, go ahead. So, go and finish off it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kind of fleshing these ideas out too because this is something I've been thinking about but haven't had a, a chance to speak on very much. Uh, speak away. Uh, speak away. Here's yeah. your, this is your chance. <laughs> well, so yeah, so you you see people that will dismiss expert opinions because it doesn't seem right to them. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you see this in, in a lot of different places. You see it with uh, climate change and things like that. Like, well, it doesn't seem right because of X, Y, Z. Well, you know, if you actually had the level of understanding, you know, you shouldn't discount uh, an expert's opinion just because it doesn't seem right to you. Now, if you dig into it, it that doesn't mean that experts are infallible. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to dig into it and find out, um, you know, dissect the argument. But at the same time, you can't go the other direction either and, and openly accept everything that, that is said um, just because they, like you said, just because they have letters after their name. Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of a balancing act, and you've got to balance between um, you know, showing some respect for the experts because they have put in the time to understand the problem, but then understand the question that they are trying to answer versus the question that you are trying to answer yeah because a subtle difference can be meaningful yeah well it's it's me and you are very similar with that sort of thought process and what we've just spoken about because i'm always you know people who constantly listen to my podcast or ever hear me speak they've always heard me say all they ever want for people to do is to think for themselves be, <laughs> be their own person to formulate their own opinions but I always say as well, you're, people are not entitled to an opinion. They're only entitled to an informed opinion. But I always, so that's kind of the balance too, right? Where, you know, I always want people to think for themselves. But at the same time, when I say think for yourself, I actually genuinely mean think for yourself and not just blind, blindly dismiss things as well. And at the same time, I don't want you to blindly accept things, but I also don't want you to blindly just dismiss things. There is that middle ground there. So all I ever want for people to do is just to critically think for themselves and be their own person and you know i always quote you know ralph Waldo emerson's self-reliance we're like read that read that essay it's brilliant self-reliance yeah. you know think for yourself be your own person have that courage to you know to actually formulate your own thoughts and and believe in your own thoughts and have enough courage to come to your own conclusions so we're definitely cut yeah. from the same cloth with regards to with regards to that issue anyway yeah yeah i agree uh, auto regulation, Mike. This is this is kind of really what what you are known for. So yeah, every time your name pops up, it's always reactive training systems and auto regulation, and the RPE scale that you've kind of brought in with regards to the lift. So maybe for the people who aren't too familiar with this idea of auto regulation, just maybe fill us in, give us the one on one on it. All right. So auto regulation is it basically just means um, that we need to listen to our body. Now, a lot of people have talked about that over the years and about the need to listen to your body to adapt the training program mm-hmm. based on how you're actually doing that day. Um, and when I first started hearing about this, um, of course, it's interesting, you know, this, this notion of uh, using basically biofeedback, although I didn't know it was called that at the time. Um, so I started asking more questions and trying to dig a little deeper. And the answer I always kept coming back to uh, from people who 
improve their training program without them making that 10-year investment? You know, how can we speed up this process? Mm. You know, so what I did is I just started observing the things that I was learning. You know, so as I started to learn more about listening to my own body, what is it? What does it mean? Like when I'm uh, when I'm feeling like that's enough work for the day. What does that What does that mean? How can I tell? You know. So that's kind of how it got started, and really what it, RTS evolved into is a collection of tools, and that's really what it is at, at its core. It's a collection of tools, and you can use these tools with any kind of training program. Uh, the analogy that I use is RTS uh, is like a scope that goes on a rifle. It doesn't really fundamentally change the rifle at all, rifle being your base training system. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't fundamentally change the rifle at all. It just allows you to use it more effectively. Sharpness to focus. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can use block periodization or linear periodization. Uh, daily undulating is, you know, becoming more popular now uh, for good reasons. You know, so things like that, you can use the RTS tools with any of those programs. It doesn't change, it doesn't change the strategy that you're using. It just allows you to employ that strategy more effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, at the core of the RTS tools is a concept called RPE. RPE stands for Rate of Perceived Exertion. And it's basically just how hard did it feel? We use a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the hardest. So 10 is like a maximum effort, no reps left in the tank, um, a, a very hard set. And then a 9 is one level below that. So say that was a hard set, but I had maybe one, left, one rep left in the tank. So say you do a set of 5 and you put it down and you go, I could have done one more rep if I had to. Well, that's a, a 9 RPE. And then so on and so forth. And I've got, uh, there's a, a chart that uh, clearly defines what each of those RPE levels are. Now, what does that allow us to do? I mean, it's neat that we put a number with it, but it's got to have some meaningful impact on our training. Otherwise, it's just useless, you know. So what RPE allows us to do, if you have somebody who's, who's using RPE in, uh, in their training, you can expect that the, the weight on the bar will adjust up or down depending on their performance that day. So if they're having a good day, that they'll use more weight, and if they're having a bad day, that they'll use less weight. Here's, here's how that works. If, if you're going to the gym to bench press, and I tell you I want you to work up to a set of five at a nine RPE, we know that generally that's a certain percentage, and there's also a chart that will give you whatever percentage that is. Let's say, uh, let's say that it's uh, 80%, which I think is a bit of a low ball, but whatever. Um, so let's say it's 80%. So you know that that's the goal, that's the target weight. But as you're warming up and as you're getting closer to that 80% mark, you're paying attention to your RPE. And if you're having a really good day and the weights are moving fast, then you'll use a little bit more weight. Remember, the goal is to do five reps at a nine RPE. It's not necessarily a certain weight, but a certain rep and effort. Mm. And then if you're having a really crappy day and everything feels heavy, you'll use less weight. You know, if, if everything's feeling heavy 
you're having a bad day for whatever reason, your poor recovery or uh, you're not getting it correct sleep or nutrition or something like that, then the weights will be lower. It will take less weight to produce that five reps of a nine RPE. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we get auto regulation. The weight automatically adjusts up or down depending on your performance that day. Mm-hmm. And that's really one of the core tools that we use with, uh, with RTS. And then there's some other tools that we use, to, but it's all kind of centered around uh, the use of RPE. And will you use audio auto regulation all the time within your own training and within the training of your clients? Yeah, yeah, pretty much all the time. The only time that we won't is if we have a a ranked beginner. Um, if that if you're a, a real beginner, let's say under one year of barbell training, um, you don't have the experience uh, to be able to to make accurate RPE predictions. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Uh, for those people, I still uh, recommend that they uh, practice gauging their RPE. So every time they finish a set, go ahead and rate your RPE because it's it's like any skill. The more you practice, the better you get. Yeah. And then once you get decently good at it, uh, then you can use that tool more effectively. Brilliant stuff. All right, let's get into a, a bit of a juicy question. Um, I'm sure the listeners are dying for me to ask. Westside for raw lifters, what are your what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I I did it for a number of years. You know, when I was uh, when when I was in high school, and um, even even after high school, I I did it. I did make progress with it, but I don't think it's as much progress as I would have made otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the reason, um, now I've, I've read a bunch of articles talking about modifications that you can make to, for Westside uh, to do it for raw lifting. And that's all well and good. You know, if, if you have some modifications that you want to make uh, to, to use that system, hey, that's fine. But in terms of what I did and what I see a lot of people doing, I think there are some common mistakes that are made and that's really here's the thing anytime uh, anytime people use the term west side in in a discussion or debate about training methodology uh, it gets it gets really heated and I don't think there's a real reason for that I mean I think it's a lot more worthwhile and interesting to just discuss method you yeah, know yeah one thing, probably the most popular article that I've written, which I have mixed feelings about that, but um, probably the most popular article I've written is uh, called Why Speed Work Doesn't Work. Now, there's some subtext that I expected people to read into that that kind of got missed. It doesn't work as for the reasons that you think it does. Yeah. It doesn't enhance your ability to produce force. Now, whether or not your one rep max goes up as a result of it, maybe, and there's some reasons why that might happen, I still don't think it's the best choice. And here's here's where the debate gets more interesting to me. If we're talking about a particular method, and in this case, let's drop the name speed work because that also is, is associated with Westside and it gets people upset. You know, 
oftentimes isn't the actual competition list. So we're talking about doing box squats or benching with bands or something that's basically something that's not the competition list using very lightweight. I think that that doesn't do very much for you in terms of enhancing your ability to produce force. And there are better choices out there than that. You know, so if you wanted to do west side for raw lifting, that's one of the things I would change. There's other things I would change too, but I mean, truth of the matter is, after I got done modifying the program, it would look like one of my programs and not like the original. So it's not, basically, it's not something that, that I would have someone do, you know. So just, just, if, uh, just sorry to interrupt you. So just with that, I'm sorry, I had to go to the fridge and get a bottle of water. Just going back on that with this, with the light, I was going to say speed work, and I was like, that's not what he said. <laughs> with the with the lighter loads, um, would you just keep that bar the same, or do you think there's any merit to having accommodating resistance on it, or is it is it dependent on what you're seeing with that lifter if they struggle from the floor or lockout? Well, I definitely use accommodating resistance uh, with with myself and and my athletes. But I don't do it. So, so here's the thing: it's it's kind of build at least at least in part that accommodating resistance helps reduce the deceleration phase of of the the lift. So you're using a very light weight, and you have this deceleration phase. So you put a band or a chain on the bar to help reduce that. Mm-hmm. You know, and to be to be fair, that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Well, I think I think the problem is with the, the light bar weight. Uh, not necessarily that you need to put a band on it, but that the bar weight is so light that it's not, like from a neurological standpoint, it's not the same movement. I think you would be better off just to use a heavier weight if we're talking about development of, of basic skills and abilities. Yeah. Now, if we have somebody who shows a particular weakness and we can use a band or a chain to help them produce more force in that weak range of motion, then all in, man, that's, that's, to me, that's the proper use of that tool. Yeah. I think I, cause I, I think I saw a video you mentioned, like it was a while back, like the video, I only saw the video maybe four or five six weeks ago but the video was maybe two years old and you were benching with a very light band but you said in the video he said oh, yes i do use a combination resistance but very very rarely and not to the same degree as Westside. and you you said you kind of apply it differently as well not to the way that they do it i think if yeah I, if i picked it up right well i i do try to keep it to around uh say 10 to 20 percent of my raw one rm you know i don't see a whole lot of value in using a huge amount of accommodating resistance it just changes the the dynamic of the movement yeah because the the bottom of it then becomes too light really then isn't it yeah yeah Yeah. well see that's something else too take someone who has uh has trouble locking out of deadlift you know the common advice for them is to to use bands use chains uh or do rack pulls or reverse bands but you get the idea yeah yeah Use some sort of accommodating resistance uh, or a partial range of motion. The thing is, so if you use an accommodating resistance, what happens? You use a lighter bar weight uh, so that you can continue to complete the lift. So a lifter already 
you know. So we basically make the bottom part easier, but to what what advantage? You know, they're already struggle at the top. So for them to do a straight weight deadlift, it already emphasizes the the uh, top of that range of motion. You know, to place additional emphasis, you know, we have to we have to ask ourselves what the cost and benefit is with that. You know, and I'm not sure that it adds up. So, just, so for me, just, if I have somebody who oh yeah. struggles to lock out a deadlift, so I'll that, go a bit of a different direction. Yeah. Occasionally, we'll, we will use bands and chains. I'm not saying that it's a totally worthless uh, methodology. It's not. Uh, it's good as a form of overload, and it's it can help it can help teach certain skills and abilities. I don't think that it helps with the development of force production and. And that's what I think the base of powerlifting training is about. So, in, in your in your article, sorry, I, I put it across here. Just I want to get this question before it leaves my, my bright brain. In your article, my kind of understanding, and, and you can obviously add to this, and well, this is why I'm I'm bringing it up. In your article, I, I was you were kind of like the fact that powerlifting isn't under any time restraint, meaning you know it doesn't matter if you get the bar up in eight seconds or three seconds from whatever the bench squat deadlift. That power powerlifting is definitely more towards the force, sorry, the, the mass aspect on that force on the on the mass times acceleration for force output. But if you're under a time restraint, like in a sport or track and field, do you think more speed strength work? has more importance than something like that where your time to apply the force is under a, a time restriction yeah yeah certainly so like if you look at something like shot foot you know now there's no time restriction to yes. throwing the shot like uh you know you don't get disqualified if you take too long or anything that's, that's like why that. a but lot of a lot of shot putters become powerlifters too because they're just pure brute force machines like yeah uh, well i don't mean to say that shot putting is all about force you know, I mean, how far does the shot go? Uh, that is totally a, a function of uh, of its trajectory mm. and its speed when it leaves your hand. Yeah. After it leaves your hand, it's purely ballistic. You know, there's nothing else you can do. So the objective then for throwing the shot foot is to get it on an optimal trajectory and have it leave your hand as fast as possible. Yeah. That's how you throw the shot foot as fast as you can. So speed is a factor for something like a shot foot, yeah, yeah. you know, but yeah. speed isn't a factor for something like powerlifting. Yeah, yeah. There's no ballistic component to it, uh, a fast lift, a slow lift, it all counts the same. So is it, 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 this is why you kind of feel that, again, if we go back to mass time deceleration with regards to force lift, you feel that spending more time on the kind of more mass aspect is more important for a powerlifter rather than you're thinking that, listen, all this time spent on acceleration isn't maybe doing what you think it's doing well the problem that i have with uh with using the light weight i think let's let's use a hypothetical here if you could accelerate um the light weights fast enough so that your force production was the same you know so so the the traditional reasoning is that uh you know, mass times acceleration. So even if you have a light weight, as long as you accelerate it as fast as you can, you're still producing maximum force. Yeah. Right? Well, that's true on paper. But when we measure it in real life, 
we find that people aren't capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, we find that we take a lightweight and say, accelerate this as fast as you can. And that they try to accelerate as fast as they can, but they still don't produce the same amount of force. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we measure the force output, it's just not the same amount of force. A heavier weight allows them to produce more force. And there's a couple theories as to the reason why part of it could be uh, because of, of nervous system activation, the heavier weights help activate your nervous system more. Or it could just simply be a matter of time. Since a heavy weight moves slower, yeah. you have more time under the tension to generate a higher level of force. I, I wonder, is a heavier weight perceived as more threat to your body as well? Therefore, because we know that one of the main roles with regards to force production is trying to diminish the inhibition that the CNS has on our force output capability. So maybe is the heavier load the fact that it's more stressful to the system? Maybe it, it, it speeds along that adaptation or it's, it's faster at getting that adaptation and allowing us to produce more force output, like diminish that CNS inhibition on our abilities to do that? It, it could be. You know, I mean, regardless of the reason, we see that that's true. Mm. That heavier weights when we measure actual force output and, and don't just look at it as an equation on paper. Yeah. Measuring actual force output, heavier weights allow people to produce higher levels of force. Yeah, so time. in terms of practice, using a heavier weight is going to allow you to, to practice more. So just, you know? just moving on from that, because we've only 20 minutes and I have fucking loads of questions here. Because so. <laughs> uh, you're, you're someone I wanted to really get on because uh, I'm not a competitive powerlifter for my own stretch. You know, I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm a, a physical preparation coach here in Ireland and um, you know, people call it strength and conditioning, but I'm like James Smith. Yeah. I'm like James Smith. I like physical preparation more. But, uh, you know, I, I, just my own training now, I've been kind of putting a bit more of a power lift and spin on it. But sure, I've been like everyone, you know, west side, oh, I have my dyna- my max day, my dynamic day. And then when I talk to Chad, and Chad's kind of like, yeah, but you don't lift and multiply and you don't squat like that. And he's like, you don't squat, do it. So, you, so he was kind of getting my head around it. He's like, look at some of Mike, Mike's work. So this idea then of like multiple, so my next question is like the idea of squatting or deadlifting or benching multiple times a week. So can you kind of get into that and also you're someone of you, you like a lot of frequency in training or you like to practice the competition lifts a lot so maybe could you get into that and from someone who maybe is kind of getting into powerlifting could you I know like everyone's different but what would be a rough starting template would, would it be like three times a week squat you know once dead twice bench or how, how does that map out if you that question's all over the place but hopefully you can do, do <laughs> hopefully you can do something with it there so I'm essentially asking like doing squat bench and deadlift multiple times a week because we've kind of been I won't say brainwashed, but again, you were saying Louis was the kind of only information we put out there for so long. So everyone's kind of like, you know, one heavy day, one speed day, you know, for both upper and lower. That's kind of what the mindset had been. But now we see this kind of raw powerlifting be getting big and, and a lot of articles been written. And it's kind of like, you know, you can squat more than once a week heavy. So uh, can, yeah. can, can you get into that, Mike? Yeah, so I definitely think the, uh, you know, the typical, you know, twice a week upper lower split that has its place. Uh, let me back up for a second. So <laughs> to start out, if, if I had someone who was just starting out uh, and they were, uh, like you said, everyone's different, so their basic conditioning is going to be a big factor. Yeah. But usually we see, or I see, uh, people who are capable of training three times a week. Um, we might start them off with uh, 
an upper lower split that uh, rotates every week. So they may train bench twice and squat once, and then the next week it would flip. Uh, they would train squat deadlift uh, twice and then bench once. You know, okay. so early on, here's the thing: early on, it doesn't take a whole lot of training volume to get an adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, and then once they get to be in better shape and of higher strength. Uh, just higher strength ability, then it will take gradually more and more training volume uh, for them to continue to adapt. You know, I mean, this is principle of progressive overload in action. You know, yeah. so as the it, it doesn't mean that every session has to be more volume than the session before it. We're talking about aggregates and long term. You know, yes, yes. so over the months and years, the training volume has to increase, and so you, they will go from you know, maybe a three times a week upper lower split, then maybe into a four times a week upper lower split. Then depending on the training volume, we might go back to three times a week full body training Mm. and then four times a week full body training, then five times a week full body training and and so on. You know, but by the time you've made it to five times a week full body training, you've got years and years of experience, you know. So this isn't, this isn't a progression that you go through in a couple of months. This is something that's, that's long-term. Yeah. So. I, and I just, like, I, I guess for, for most sort of, say even just, like, I'd be an average type lifter, so, you know, I can almost squat two times my body weight. I'm 90 kilo, max squat 170. Like, I'm not great. I know, I'm weak. I've just, I've just announced it online. Uh, <laughs> uh, 205 dead and a one, 110 bench. So there might like, but I've never really like fully trained the list. You know what I mean? But say yeah. for some someone like me, like, cause I'm not gonna lie, like right now I'm very confused. I'm like, oh yeah, like I was like, I just do like you know heavy day, speed day, it'll all work out. And then like you know again reading your stuff and Chad's work, I'm like, geez, I know nothing about powerlifting uh, periodization. And I went to see Christian Thibodeau back in May, and Christian kind of was like, right, here's the Bulgarian system, Russian system, uh, and Chinese system, and he's like, every kind of training template kind of comes as a variation of this, and he was explaining the whole system, so I was like, I know nothing about this either, so I know very little when it comes to term of raw powerlifting and Olympic lifting period program design type of way. So like, just for someone, say, of average training kind of experience like myself, like, would, like, would you have someone like me squat multiple times a week, deadlift multiple times a week, bench multiple times a week? I know, like, again, we, we've kind of said it's different, but what I'm trying to get is, like, I know I've heard you say, like, listen, don't worry, you're not going to overtrain, you're not overtraining, it's fine, you, you'll survive, like, because I, I read an article, I don't know who wrote it, though, it was on Juggernaut, and they said they'd done programming underneath you, and they were like, they were like, God, I, like, you know, he had me, like, benching or squatting, at, like, really lots of volumes in a week, and I thought I was going to die, and, and then he's like, but I adapted, and he's like, and I actually set a PR, like, on the last squat day, where you think I'd be most fatigued and all, so, like, again, just getting into that sort of lifting multiple times a week, like, what, like, what, what, why, why, what is it that you see in that, is it, is it, again, more sport technique, is it just purely, you know, you're either going to adapt or not adapt, is it just going back to basic stress physiology, you either you know, the general adaptation syndrome. Is that, is that kind of what you're going, basing all this off? Well, it comes from a, a couple of places. So there's only so much training volume that you can do in one session. Yeah. You know, and we we talked about how training volume has to increase from one year to the next. So at some point, you're going to run into some practical limitations. You know, uh, you can't. It's not even a matter of having the time to do all the training volume in one session. 
after a certain point, you're tired and the, the quality of the work diminishes. Yeah. So at that point, it's better to split the, the session into the uh, higher frequency, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that is part of the basis. A big part of it is just having more opportunities to get the work in, you know? You have to get a certain amount of volume and you need the opportunities to train uh, to get enough high-quality work in. And are, so you, are, you, are you keeping everything high intensity all the time or are you manipulating volumes or is, is, is this another case of, well, it depends again on the individual, what I'm seeing, can they handle you know, two back-to-back high intensity days or an undulating, like one, one's a high day, one's a lower CNS day? Like, I suppose it well, how would, you, how would you define high intensity? Well, I suppose if you're going by your RPE scale, I suppose it's anything above an 8, is it? 8, 9, 10 in the lift? And that's... Uh, well, I mean, at that point, the, the reps matter a lot, you know. So if you do uh, five reps at an 8, that'll be much lower intensity than two reps at an 8. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, if, if we were going off classical training that you'd always read, they'd say, like, 90% above is basically what I'm saying. So, like, if you were to squat heavy doubles today, would you prescribe heavy, heavy squats either the day after or maybe two days later? Within Obviously, that's obviously within the same week. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Whereas, like, you know... Most people are kind of like, oh no, no, you're only going to max out once and then speed day the next day because your CNS is going to be fried. And like, I to be honest, well, even, even even myself, I've always like, I don't believe that. I think that's a bit of bullshit to be honest. I think. Well, yeah, and, and that's something else that even back when I when I was uh, using Westside training, I kind of had to not think too hard about the the whole CNS thing. Yeah. Here, here's the thing: your CNS is your brain and your spinal cord. So that is, if we just accept for a minute that that is something that can be fatigued in an appreciable way mm-hmm. from lifting weight, that is going to be active no matter what lift you do. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether you do a good morning with a wide stance or well, next week you're changing to a narrow stance, well, you only have one brain and spinal cord. Yeah. It's going to travel the same nerve impulses exactly. regardless of what stance you're using. Maybe the peripheral nervous system is slightly different, but even that is not going to be huge yeah. to a very significant uh, degree in terms of if we're talking about like motor neurons, you know. Now, if we're talking about your your brain's ability to learn and reproduce a motor pattern, then the details matter a lot more. Yes. But it's not so much about you know overtraining the central nervous system. Yeah. So you mentioned ninety percent being kind of the cutoff for high intensity. Just going off basic tradition, you know. Tr- tr- right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, which is something that that we see and, and hear about a lot. I think that ninety percent. Let's let's just take ninety percent for, for a minute. I think ninety percent weights are stressful if you think they're stressful. Yeah. Part of it's placebo effect, but another part of it is. I mean, think about how you would behave, all right? If you, had, if you believe that 90% weights are stressful and that if you touch 90% weights that you're going to be fried, you're not going to train with them very often, mm-hmm. you know? So as a result, uh, you just don't have a whole lot of exposure to weights that are that heavy. Yeah. Training stress seems to come from two different basic places. It comes from the training volume or just the total work that you do and then it comes from psychologically how you approach it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you never really touch 90% plus weight, then the day that you do touch 90% weight, that's that's heavier than you've, than you've gone in training in weeks and weeks. You know, 
So when you approach the bar, there's some apprehension, there's some anxiety, you know. Uh, so a lot of people will cover that up with aggression. So now they're getting psyched up, mm-hmm. you know. That is stressful. Now if you take, on the other hand, somebody who trains with 90% weights every week, well, then it becomes routine, you know. Yeah, yeah. And for them, well, now they don't get psyched up about it. It's not a big deal. You do it all the time, mm-hmm. you know. There's kind of a, a uh, I, I don't have a good term for it, but there's a period in there uh, where you you just kind of have to suck it up and get used to it. Yeah, because it, <clears throat> when you first start it, you first start training at high intensity often, yeah. and it's stressful, yeah. you know. And then you kind of feel like crap. Well, if you stop, then you'll always feel like crap when you touch high, high intensity weights. It's just an adaptation. If you kind of keep going through that, it's a yeah, exactly. There's a couple week period where you make that adaptation, and then it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah, it's like when you go on a, key, a ketogenic diet. Oh Jesus, that's all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Keep going there, Mike. Um. You're talking about that. See. Okay, yeah, we were talking about frequency. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So as far as, like, why why the frequency and and why for all that stuff, um, yeah, that would be be one thing. It's just that it's an opportunity uh, for volume. It's also an opportunity for more practice. Mm. So the, the volume is part of it, but then... You know, you're doing more reps when you're fresh and you're able to focus. And uh, also, if you train the squat every 72 hours, well, now you're not going more than three days without having squatted. If you're only training it once a week, well, now it's a whole week since you've had that practice. You know, so more exposure, more frequent exposure is good for learning the skill. And just but it does, no, it does no, depend no. on the, the level. So it's kind of, it's kind of a twofold process in that one you want you're wanting people to get used to to being to lifting at a higher percentage more often so higher intensity and higher frequency and higher volume than overall and two you're probably going to get better also because of the extra motor learning from doing the lift more often yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so maybe maybe it would be uh, helpful to kind of work through an example if you'd be game for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's use you as, as a guinea pig. So you listed off what your what your maxes are uh, recently. Yeah, uh, the, the, that, that is recently. I know, I know it's not great. I know it's not great. I, I, will, I will admit that genetically, I'm definitely an endurance athlete. So I'm, I'm working against my genetics here. All right. The, you know, everybody's all in, we're all in pursuit of the next PR. And <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all that matters. Well, actually, in, in, in honest, um, uh, that's that's another reason why I like I wanted to get you on and ask with this because I I'm trying to I, I want to get eventually a 190 squad, a 130 bench, and a uh, what do I want a 225 deadlift. So essentially, 20 kilo on all my lifts is what I'm looking to get within the next I don't know six months or so. So, and but see, as I said, to you, I'm very confused now how to actually train powerlifting wise because I what you and Chad says makes sense, but I'm I'm just trying to put it together in my mind, like you know. Uh, like how many times a week should I be squatting now deadlifting benching do I start off with like kind of Chad's consolidation of stress where he kind of goes six days a week it's also maximum high volume and then it goes down as the blocks go on or so in fairness I still need to actually get some more of your work and look into it so 
But anyway, sorry, you can use me as the guinea pig. That's kind of what I was hoping you'd do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, just remind me briefly what your uh, current maxes are. So back squat is 170, bench is at 110, and my dead is 205. That's all kilos, not pounds. Yeah, yeah. So what, what's your body weight? 90 kilo. Okay. So uh, that puts your will score at 309, 310. Yeah. Um, so at that, at that level... Um, So I'm 27 and I'm probably seriously lifting weights five years, as in like seriously doing a proper training program every four, three to four weeks. Okay. And then what's your uh, training history in terms of like currently, what's your frequency like? Uh, I would never train any less. Like, so when I say train, I'm talking about actually lifting you know what's relatively heavy to me i'd never train less probably than three times a week and i always train so anywhere from three to five times a week was what i'd lift a week generally three to four okay. times a week so i usually either do a three three week total body or i do an upper lower uh two upper two lower that's usually at the moment i'm on two upper two lower monday wednesday friday saturday okay so you're currently used to training uh as far as frequency goes it's two to three times frequency yeah which yeah. is is pretty typical yeah um And then let's just, uh, for the sake of discussion, let's assume that your availability is uh, great. Let's say that you you have unlimited time to be in the it, gym. It, it, to, be, to be honest, it actually is like like uh, it is actually it is actually pretty good. Like every like I actually book off nearly a section every morning, so I train. And even the days I don't train, I'm always doing work capacity sessions, like just body weight stuff, mobility, recovery. Like I, I could train every day. Like all right, all right. Given that, uh, based on, for someone of, of your classification, so around a 310 Wilkes score, uh, just knowing nothing else about them, I'm probably going to reach for three times a week frequency okay. for that person. You know, uh, given that you've been training for, for five years, um, probably around that frequency, I would start there. Uh, I would start around three times a week frequency, but just kind of be mindful of the training volume and and try to push that training volume a little bit. Um, and then when you get to the point where pushing the training volume doesn't really, you're not a, basically you're not able to push the training volume. You go, man, I, I need to increase the volume, but I'm already exhausted by the end of the session. You, you'd add in an extra day then, would we? Exactly, yeah. So then you go from three times a week frequency to you know more in the four times a week frequency range and, and I, it's not it's not always so clear cut yeah right yeah, yeah. so currently my i'm training my bench five times a week i'm squatting three times a week and deadlifting twice a week Oof. so there's some concessions that have to be made once you start putting this into a real world template yes, but yes. that kind of gives you an idea maybe of, of the process and and say on those three days, like is it is it like it was that goes back? I know you said it earlier on there. You'd say that might would that be like an alternating like so, squat and deadlift maybe Monday Friday bench Wednesday and then flip flop that around the next week. Would that be how you'd maybe approach that? On a three. Well, day? for you right now, um, I would squat. Uh, well, let me back up and present this a little differently. On Monday, uh, you could squat. 
be just squatting and just squatting and just benching or just benching and just deadlifting. You may do two bench movements yes. or uh, some, some variation thereof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't all have to be competition bench pressing. I would make sure that you're doing the competition movement with it 80% plus intensity at least once a week. Okay. And then the other the other sessions can be uh, closed assistance exercises. Now, by closed, I mean like a pause squat or a pin squat. Yes. We're talking, yeah, yeah. We're I... talking about squatting and also some form of squatting that's very close to what you would do in a competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like this, make, this is one or two degrees removed. This is brilliant because I, like a lot of the listeners, I would imagine, would be pretty similar in my kind of lifting capabilities. So that's kind of why I wanted to, you know use myself and Ernie as an example or as the guinea pig but uh, there was something else there was there was one other thing I was going to say oh yeah so just with regards to then setting out the training like would you work it like an accumulation block intensification and then a realization or as you said is it just make sure that there's an 80% for like 80% plus on each one of those lifts every week or is it kind of make sure that there's at least a an A plus or 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 P on one of those lifts every week, or how 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 is that going about? Is there an actual? I suppose like I know earlier on you said that or this system actually fits into any kind of periodization scheme you want to use, but like how how like how would you personally map that out? Like so like am I starting month one doing like sixes or eights and then you know going down like kind of Chad does with Juggernaut or you know how how exactly would that map out like or in your mind if that makes sense. Uh it depends very much on the length of the cycle and the kind of lifter I'm working with and, and so on. In general, I tend to use a, a strategy that's somewhat inspired by block periodization. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, I teach a class uh, called RTS Classroom, and you can enroll in it on my website. We're, we're, uh, to just let you know, we'll, we'll, at the end of the show, I'm going to make sure we... we definitely tell people about that because that's because uh, I, I was literally on your when Chad goes check out Mike Tashira because I heard you before but I was, I was like oh he's got this classroom thing and I was like I love online stuff I'm like I'm definitely getting, I'm definitely getting this yeah man it's, it's a really cool way to, to do it and I just recently did a, a 10 lesson series on how to develop a strength training program okay awesome. and it all centers around developing a strategy right and there's a lot of People, people love to get in debates about what's better, you know, linear periodization or block periodization or conjugate periodization or what any of these terms, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, they almost never occur in isolation. You know, if you look at, at a block periodization program, you know, a program that heavily uses block periodization, you'll also see influences from linear periodization because that's what it was derived from. And you'll also often see elements of daily undulating periodization. And you see daily undulating programs that have an overall linear pattern, you know. So none of them ever occur in isolation. It's always a blend, you know. So there's the the particular blend that I often reach for, um, which tends to have a linear progression from one week to the next. But then there's... um, it undulates within the week and, and so on. So, but then there are differences too. So if I have a lifter who maybe they're a master's lifter and uh, they have trouble recovering, you know, we may do, we may use a slightly different strategy 
that uses more frequent deloads or maybe is a reverse linear uh, uses reverse linear training blocks. But then you can progress those training blocks in a certain way so that it's linear overall. Now all this stuff works a lot better if I can draw a picture for you, and it's a lot easier to understand if you can if you can see something, which is why. Well, no, it's it's it's, it's make, it, no, it, it makes some sense because one thing I will say is that I absolutely like love talking program design and periodization. Well, like program design is pretty fucking cut and dry. Like, I mean, it's periodization or organization trains what people want to talk about because when you're talking about program design, it's like you read everyone's program design warm up the main session cool down oh right everyone's doing that <laughs> yeah and then you know if you're talking about like sports performance like athletes performance it's you know it's all you know pillar prep or fms correctives and then it's warm-up and then it's your you know your your plyo med ball and then your your all your moving skills and then your speed work and then your olympic lifts and strength work and esd like all kind of sports performance stuff is laid out kind of in that same format but it's a kind of organization of training that's good you know talking about block and concurrent and you know all that stuff so like a lot of yeah. a lot of stuff you're like with me it's making sense because i read a lot of that stuff so even when you said like re- reverse linear I'm, I'm assuming what you mean by that is like reverse linear to me it, it, it would mean that you're sort of because linear periodization is going from higher volume to less volume more intensity so obviously then it would be the reverse of that is that what you're doing yeah so this is this is pretty interesting so with certain people certain populations of people they seem to have trouble recovering mm. right now here's the thing they still need the volume. Yeah. If we just cut the volume, then they get weaker. Yeah, they're healthy, but they're they're weaker. And so we need to find a way to get them volume, but without beating the crap out of them. Yes, yes. So how do we do that? So one thing, and I borrowed this idea. I went to a, a presentation about uh, the Chinese weightlifting uh, sport program, mm. and they presented an, an idea uh, for uh, for training that supposedly Chinese weightlifters use. Now, I'm sure not all of them use the same idea. I'm sure it's not the same year-round and such and such, but yeah. it was an idea that was presented at this conference, and I've used it with this population. Mm-hmm. So what they do is train in, in basically three-week blocks. So the first week, now think of it, if you were training in a three-week block that had a linear pattern, First would be very low volume, or, or excuse me, very low intensity, and the intensity would get gradually more and more as the week progressed. Yes, yes. Well, they flip that around. Yeah. Okay. So the first week is your very heaviest week, and the idea is this is when you're going to be the freshest. This is when you're going to feel the best. So we'll go the heaviest on week one. Yeah. Um, then on week two, we'll use lower intensity but higher volume. Mm. And then in week three, we deload. So the idea is that first week when you feel good, then we'll go heavy. Yeah. And the second week when you're starting to get a little beat up, we'll back off a bit on how much weight we use, but we'll use more training volume. And then by the third week when you're really feeling crappy, uh, then we'll deload and then you'll feel better. And then the process repeats. Yeah, yeah. So you see it's a reverse linear block. But then you organize it so that it, it still has to fit in a linear model over the course of a cycle. Mm. You still have to start out. Uh, so basically what it means is early on in the cycle, your high-intensity week is still relatively uh, low intensity. You know, Your high-intensity week in the beginning might only be 80 or 85%, yeah. but then your high-intensity week toward the end might be 90, 95, 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, so it still has an overall 
it's it's actually ironic that you say because I you know I'm always doodling like and fiddling around writing notes about you know what if you did it this way or that way and that's actually one model I did write out and also if it, there's a wave model I see you know Eric Cressy kind of uses where he goes heavy in the first week medium in the second very very heavy third and a complete deload four so he kind of waves it like that early yeah. also too in triphasic training I'm just reading that at the moment and Cal Dietz talked about you know he took that Bulgarian model of where it was it was like real heavy day one it was heavy and high like it was high volume high intensity day one then it was more like medium intensity medium volume on the third day and it was like really high volume but low intensity on the Friday and he's like and my athlete and my athletes got really bad results because <laughs> he, he was like he was like that really high volume they crushed him and he was like so what he done was he just moved everything to the left so now I think it was the I think the high intensity day was in the middle was it and that volume day was the first one Oh no! Yeah. Sorry, the volume day was the first day. The real high intensity day was the third day, and then it was more kind of the medium on the Friday or something along those lines. I could be wrong now, and uh, they uh, they recovered so much more better. Like so, it's just it, it kind of a similar sort of thought process with that as well. Which uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Cal's a, a brilliant coach. I really like talking with him, uh, but that's also a form of daily undulating periodization. I sorry, well, how, just, just, how are we gonna? Just to let you know, I have, I, have it, I have it right here in front because I have it on my Kindle. I want to make sure I say it right. So his modified undulating one was Monday was medium intensity, medium volume. Wednesday was high intensity, low volume. And then Friday went to low intensity, high volume. What was the old model then he was using? The old the model that was crushing his athletes was... Well, maybe I've gone past it. But anyway, he, he changed it around, the old Bulgarian system one. He was, crush, yeah. he was crushing his athletes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he, sorry. The, old, the, the model he originally was using, this is the classic one. It was low intensity, high volume on the Monday medium intensity medium in volume on the Wednesday and then it was high intensity high volume and he said that was crushing his athletes so he, yeah. sorry, he was doing the high intensity on the Friday and with low volume and that was crushing his athletes and then he changed it around then to to what I just said before that which was so yeah Monday then went medium intensity medium volume Wednesday now was the high intensity day low volume and then Friday was low intensity high volume so that's what he changed it to but yeah but it was funny because reading the book he was like I used this uh, this Bulgarian model with like my uh with my collegiate athletes and uh, yeah they got they got really bad results <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's very much like a clock so if you if you imagine you know the, the face of the clock as an hour hand a minute hand and a second hand yeah um each of these cycles is like a different hand on the clock like yes there's a, a way to organize the the weeks of training you know it, it organize your training uh training block you know, maybe that's like the second hand. And then there's the way that you organize the training cycle as a whole. You know, maybe that's the minute hand. Mm. And then there's the way that you organize the annual plan or even a multi-year plan, and maybe that's like the hour hand. Yeah. You know, and so there's all these different levels of organizing the training. So you may be, like we talked about, you may be reverse linear at one level, but then pretty much linear at another level. So it's, it's really interesting how these different strategies will come into play at the different levels of training. And you may, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of each strategy will carry more or less weight depending on what level we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, I don't want to keep you too much longer because we're almost 10 minutes over time. But um, as quickly as you could, this is a bit of an unfair question because you probably need a bit of time, but... I just want to, I want to ask this too, just with regards to like accessory work. I know like my, my parents and friends, but you never ask them about accessory work. 
So they'll be like, why don't you have some? So what would be your top tips with accessory work? You know, I, I know, again, it's going to depend on the lifter probably is what you're going to say. But like, I know, you know, if someone's kind of missing it on their chest. Is it more pause type stuff? If it's lockout, maybe more close grip triceps up. If it's, we spoke about lockout on the deadlift earlier on. If they're kind of not getting good position on the bottom of the squat, like things like that. Like, so I suppose what would be your kind of go-to accessory work? Keeping, keeping in mind that everyone's individual with regards to their accessory work. Well, just as, as a general rule, um, if you're in doubt, keep it closer to the competition list. Oh, that's a great one. I like that. Yeah. So if you're if you're thinking, you know, I don't know whether I should do, you know, uh, pause squats with a safety squat bar or pause squats with chains, well, we're already probably too far off base. Yeah, yeah. You know, probably just pause squat. <laughs> you know, so if in doubt, keep it closer to the competition list. And um, also, if in doubt, train a lower range of motion. Uh, strength developed in a lower range of motion is seldom wasted. Really good. So, take the bench press for example. Maybe you have a sticking point that's right in the middle. You know, if you have trouble identifying, well, are we talking about, you know, uh, four centimeters off the chest or six centimeters off the chest? Mm. Train lower. Train four centimeters, even even go lower than that. You know, um, if you don't really know where your weak range of motion is, then train the bottom. Strength built in the bottom of the lift is seldom wasted. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I suppose again, because you know, if you read mo- much kind of textbooks, they always say like that that even at the bottom, that isometric carries over fifteen degrees either way. So it, it probably isn't going to be wasted anyway. Well, yeah, there's there's that, but and see, this is also the argument going back to the speed work thing. And hopefully, uh, we don't go around again. But, no, 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 go uh, ahead, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, it kind of goes back to the speed work thing. Like one reason that people advocate for speed work is that the, there's this thought and belief that if you're going into the sticking point with more velocity, then you'll probably carry through and you know the old analogy of driving your car through a mud hole you know mm. gotta gotta have some speed when you get into it I agree with that and I think that that makes sense now I think that the way that you develop that speed isn't from doing speed work per se but rather by developing your force production yeah. you have to be able to move a heavier weight you know yeah. rather than Mike, I, I'm definitely gonna have you back on for part two because I still have some more questions with regards to like you know what are your thoughts on HRV and resources and other lots of other stuff and yeah man uh, that would be great we'll definitely have you on again but um just for the listeners uh just tell us about your website tell us about like the products upcoming projects um and even just to be honest like I, I always tell people who who meet me like at seminars go oh yeah I love your podcast and I'm all under I'm always like to be honest. The podcast was started out as a selfish project uh, project for me to like get to talk to all these great people, and I was like, <laughs> and then I was like, I just put it out for the benefit of people. So, the the reason why I'm saying that is because you're going to tell obviously people about your website and all your products here, but I kind of want you to tell me because I want to know what, what's good, what should I get? Because I'm actually right here on your website now. I see like, you know efficiency of daily maximum training, scientific practical approach, underlying periodization. Like when I see all this stuff, I'm like, yeah. And like, con- con- yeah, yeah, like concurrent training. This is what I love. Like give me all this stuff. <laughs> 
So, like, yeah, just tell us about the website and um, tell us maybe about you know this classroom and, and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to talk about classroom a bit. Um, so, RTS classroom is kind of the latest thing that we that we've done, and it's just done with this this notion that uh, we spend so much of our time on this sport and on on this pursuit that we want to get good at it, and that I think it's worthwhile for people to spend the time to become a student of their sport, you know. So this idea of uh, RTS Classroom is just a way to become a better student of your sport. So currently we have two uh, separate classes going. I'm teaching a class, and uh, Dr. Zordos is also teaching a class. Uh, these classes are, each of us teach two lessons a month, and I also try to work in some bonus lessons uh, when I when I can. So I'll, just last month I brought in uh, Ben Escrow, which you may uh, you may know him. He's really really good with nutrition. So I wanted him to come in, and he presented uh, four lessons on nutrition, where we started with nutrition basics and went all the way up into you know how would you build a fat loss diet or how would you build a muscle gain diet. Uh, based off of these fundamentals that he provided. So, like, I have my class that, where I teach. Uh, Dr. Zordos has his class where they, he teaches, and then there's also bonus lessons uh, periodically. So we try to make sure that there's plenty of content and top-notch content at that. Yeah, um, it, really, it really looks good. I'm just reading, you know, reading it here again. It's structured general topic to share programming or regulation. looks really good. Periodization, strength, sciences. Why is Dr. Zodas? This looks fucking savage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you get to uh, you get to download the lessons, and we try to mix up. There's also a live component to the lessons as well. We try to mix up the times so that you have an opportunity. People all over the world will have an opportunity to attend a live lesson and mm-hmm. ask their questions. Like, ask the person that they're interested in, ask the questions, uh, and get real-time answers. Really, really um, if you can't attend those for whatever reason, yeah. then that's great. You know, you still have the download, and there's still a private forum. Uh, one thing that I try to do in my lessons, so I'm, I'm trying to teach these certain things, uh, I try to put a homework assignment on there. And, of course, you know, you're a grown-up, and, and I'm not giving people grades, but the homework is there just kind of as an enrichment exercise. Yeah. If you wanted to try it out, try to apply the lesson, uh, then you... You do it, and you post it on this private forum, and I'll review it, and and you know we can have a discussion about it. Uh, you can ask additional questions and stuff like that. Uh, and Mike, is it is it? Do you sign up for the for um? It's a monthly fee every month. Is it is it thirty five a month or a hundred a month or? Uh, so for the first uh, the first class that you enroll in, it's a hundred a month. Okay. And then if you want to enroll in. Any additional classes, it's only thirty-five uh, oh, for right. that's, each that's, that's, class. That's, yeah, that's, that's a bargain. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, and then the bonus lessons are included with with either of the classes. Any enrollment, and you'll get the bonus lessons. Brilliant, well. brilliant, brilliant. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, guys, it's gonna be it's gonna be in the show notes anyway, Mike. So, guys, you'll be able to have it here in the show notes, and just just click on the link, and you'll you'll see it. So, Mike, that's anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? No, man, I, I would love to do this again. It's good chatting with you about this. Yeah, it was, I really, really appreciate it. So I'll just, I'll just wrap up the show, Mike, and then um, you just stay on Skype for just maybe another 30 seconds and 
I'll say my goodbye to you offline. So, guys, another great episode with uh, Mr. Mike Tashir. Definitely going to have him on again. Make sure that you check out the show notes so you get the links to his website and check out his uh, RTS classroom because I'm definitely going to be checking out. That's like that's when I saw that I was like nerd. I love it. I was so uh, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Make sure you give us a review on iTunes so it bumps us up and more people can benefit from these podcasts. So. Guys, thanks for listening. Take care. Talk to you soon and stay strong.